Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from this series, Seven. In the book of Revelation, John records Jesus' message to seven churches, speaking to them words of rebuke, exhortation, and encouragement. Though these letters were written in the first century, Jesus is still speaking through them to us today. Today's text is Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, this week they are in your little bulletin. Uh, We will hopefully have the screens back next week, and they'll certainly be back by Easter Sunday. You can follow along. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. We're going to look at another one of these ancient letters that Jesus spoke through the Apostle John to various churches in Asia, the the Roman province of Asia, what is now modern-day Turkey, about 1,900 years ago. But we will see once again how relevant they are to us. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Hear now what the Holy Spirit says to the church. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet, You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Several hundred years before the time of Christ, there was an extremely wealthy king. He was a Greek king uh, over in the area of what is modern-day Turkey, and his name was uh, Croesus, King Croesus. Some of you who are a little bit older may remember there was a a proverb that was kind of spoken, which was, or a statement that was, you were as rich as Croesus. Uh, It meant to be extremely wealthy because he was considered to be the wealthiest man in the world. And At that time, the Persian Empire was on the ascendancy under King Cyrus, the King Cyrus who allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And King Croesus wanted to fight against him because Turkey was in constant warfare between the Greeks and the Persians. And so he went to an oracle and he said, should I attack Persia? I want to attack them. Is this something I should do? And the oracle as the oracles of Greece oftentimes did. They were not like the biblical prophets. They always said things in ways that could be interpreted multiple ways. The oracle said, go and do it, and you will certainly destroy a great empire. Croesus said, okay. So he went off and he marched against Cyrus, and he promptly lost. But he retreated back to his capital at a city named Sardis. And Sardis was well known for being thought to be impregnable because it had a massive bluff hill on which the main part of the city was built. 
and they were so secure there that no one could possibly conquer this city. They didn't even bother looking for Cyrus. So he marched all the way from his empire and came up, and they didn't even know he was on the way until he arrived around the city. But they still said, there is no concern or worry. He can't possibly conquer us in Sardis. And so Cyrus was there, but within two weeks, his men had observed a soldier coming down from the city by a secret route that made it very easy to get up to the city. And they simply followed him back up and so confident was Croesus and the city of Sardis, they did not even have anyone standing watch, even though the Persian Empire was surrounding their city. So Cyrus marched in and took the city over without even a fight. The funny thing is, the same thing happened under Antiochus in 218 BC, the exact same thing. He marched in and took the city over without a fight because literally they had no watch. Everyone was asleep. The Greeks went in, opened the doors to the city, and the soldiers simply marched in, and the city was conquered while it slept. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, wrote regarding Croesus in a, uh, a poem called False Greatness. He wrote this, Thus mingled still with wealth and state, Croesus himself can never know. His true dimensions and his weight are far inferior to their show. So today we're going to look at Jesus' words to Sardis, and as you can already hear, they very much reflect the history of this city. Now, Jesus in Revelation 3.1 gives the word to John and says, I want you to write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Sardis is a town that's about 35 miles southeast of Thyatira, the city we looked at last week, and about 60 miles inland from Smyrna. So it's about 60 miles in from the coast. It was an extremely wealthy city. The reason Croesus was so wealthy was there was a lot of natural gold in the river that flowed right through the area. He was supposedly the first king to mint coins of pure gold and pure silver. Up to that time, they had always been kind of a mixture, but he had so much gold, he minted the coins out of gold and silver, and the city was still very wealthy, even these five, five or 600 years after Croesus. And again, as I said, it was built on a steep bluff, so it seemed impregnable, but as I commented in the introduction, twice that had led to false sense of security and despite their reputation, they were not only conquered, they were conquered even without a fight because it was all show and no reality. Now, they were in decline in the Roman period. After the Romans had come in and they'd become part of the Roman Empire, over the last couple hundred years, they had been in serious steep decline. The Romans had, had made places like Ephesus and Smyrna much more important than Sardis. And so Sardis was living off of its prior reputation. It thought of itself as still a great, important city, but in reality, it was really second rate now. It was no longer what it had once been. And actually, there was a huge temple to Artemis. We've been talking about the religious situation in each of these cities. They worshiped, uh, one of their chief deities was Artemis, the same god that was worshiped in Ephesus. And you remember Ephesus had a huge, massive temple to Artemis that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Well, 
Sardis, not to be outdone, said, we're going to build a temple to Artemis that is going to be the same dimensions as the one in Ephesus. And they began this incredible construction and then grew tired and bored and never completed it. So it sat up on the top of the hill, not complete. They did not finish the work that they had begun. So this is Sardis, and there is a church there in this town. And Jesus speaks to the church, and here he identifies himself as these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven stars we've seen before, they are the angels. I'm not going to take time to really go over it. You can go back to Revelation 1.20, and in the original vision of Jesus in the book of Revelation, it tells us the seven stars in his hand are the seven angels of the churches. So Jesus controls the angels of the churches and therefore the churches. He holds them in his hand. Secondly, it uses this unusual phrase, the seven spirits of God. Some modern translations refer to it as the sevenfold spirit of God, which is capturing the idea. The literal Greek is seven spirits of God. And this phrase only occurs in Revelation 1-4, the very beginning of the book. Here in Revelation 3-1, then in Revelation 4, 5, when John sees into heaven, and in Revelation 5, 6. And it's pretty clear, I believe, that it's referring to the Holy Spirit. In Revelation 1, 4, and 5, the book is begun with that these are the words are of him who was and who is and who is to come, and the seven spirits before his throne, and Jesus Christ. So it's a Trinitarian blessing from the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And so it's pretty clear to me that this would be referring to the Holy Spirit. It's an unusual phrase because God, of course, has one spirit, not seven spirits. But throughout the book of Revelation, the number seven is not used in a literal sense, but rather to speak of fullness, completeness. There are not just seven churches in Asia. There are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of churches in Asia at the point that John is writing but seven speaks of the totality. The Spirit is speaking to all of the church through these seven. And throughout the book, we see seven bowls and seven trumpets and uh, seven seals and all of these things that are sevens in the book because it refers to something that is a number of fullness and perfection. And so when it refers to, I, I have the seven spirits of God, it's saying the Holy Spirit, the fullness of who God is, is here with me. So the one that is speaking to the church in Sardis, and he's going to be speaking some difficult words, he is the one who has the angels and the spirit are with him, and they are all bearing testimony regarding the true nature of what is going on in Sardis. And the church, therefore, has to be alert and has to listen to his voice because his assessment of who you are may be different than your own. So what does Jesus say to the church in Sardis? Well, he begins by saying, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, if you were in the church in Sardis, you would be shocked because let's remember the previous four letters. No matter how bad the church had been, even in Thyatira that we saw last week, Jesus always began with the word of commendation. I want you to know I've seen this. You're doing well at this. I'm going to have some, you know, nevertheless, I have this against you. But I'm going to start with telling you what you're doing well. 
Sardis doesn't get anything like that. They're, they're geared after hearing the four previous letters. Okay, what's Jesus going to say we're doing well? He doesn't say you're doing anything well. Here's what I know about you. I know your deeds. And your deeds are, you have a reputation. You're like Croesus. You're like Sardis that thought it was impregnable. You are like the actual city in which you dwell that still thinks it's something that it's really not. I know your deeds. You have a reputation. Your reputation as a church there is that you are alive. People think you're a great church. But I, Jesus, with the angels and the spirit of the living God, tell you you're actually dead despite your reputation. Like the city of Sardis, you're living on past glories. Your current deeds do not match your reputation. Now what's interesting here is they are actually also being spoken of in the exact opposite way of Jesus, who they're supposed to represent. The church is supposed to be like Jesus. But Jesus, we are told in Revelation 1.18 and in Revelation 2.8, twice we're told regarding Jesus, I was dead, but now I'm alive. But you, Sardis, you got a reputation of being alive, and you were alive, but you're actually dead. You're not only like me, you're the opposite of me. And you're heading in the opposite direction of where I am at. Wow. If, if we got a letter to the church at Bay Ridge and it started that way, I'd be like, is there another letter, Lord? Can we take the one from, how about the one from Philadelphia? That wouldn't be better than this one. But see, this is what he's speaking to the church at Sardis. And it's an important thing for us because we have to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A Christian and a local church, even a whole group of churches, cannot live off of their past walk and faith. And to do so is spiritual death. Jesus is saying you were alive, but you're dead. What you were, which is what your reputation still is, does not match up to what you actually are. Now, you are trying to live off of last year, last decade's walk, and you cannot do that. So, what does Jesus say to this church? Well, he begins by saying, wake up, in verse two. Now, you might say, well, that's a mixing of metaphors. He just said they were dead. And now he's telling them to wake up. You're not understanding. This is the way apocalyptic language works, okay? He's, he's using a variety of metaphors. Interestingly enough, Paul has the same mixing of metaphors in Ephesians 5.14, where apparently an early song in the church was, wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will come and shine on you. So once again, wake up, sleeper, but you're dead. That, that same set of metaphors is there in Ephesians 5.14. The early church apparently liked it. So we're not here to try and press, well, what about dead versus sleeping? The point is, let the metaphors, let the weight of that fall on us as to what Jesus would speak to us. And his word to them is, wake up. Now, the interesting thing is this word, wake up, in, in the Greek, the Greek word gregoreo, normally means to be alert, 
So it's not just you're asleep, wake up. It's you're asleep when you ought to be awake and keeping watch. You ought to be vigilant. You ought to really be paying attention because you could be in great danger, but instead of being alert and on watch, you're asleep is what you are. And so that's what the word means. I'll give you a few examples where you've heard this word before. Matthew chapter 26, verses 40 and 41. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. And he, remember, he goes off and he tells the disciples, I'm gonna go over here and, and pray. You, I want you to watch and you pray, and, which is the same word. You, you watch and pray. And then he, we're told in verse 40, he returns to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said, could you men not keep watch? Same word to Sardis. Wake up is keep watch. Couldn't you keep watch and pray for one hour? He asked Peter. You remember, this is Peter who said, oh, Lord, Everybody else might desert you, but I will be here and I will fight to the end. And Jesus comes back and says, I, I asked you to watch and pray for one hour and you're asleep. You, you say you're going to fight. You say you're going to guard and pray. You can't even stay awake for an hour, Peter. Where, where were you at? And then in verse 41, he says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Same Greek words. Watch is the word wake up. In Acts chapter 20. Verses 29 to 31, the Apostle Paul, I mentioned this when we looked at the church at Ephesus, he's telling the Ephesians, this is the last time I'm gonna see you all. I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit's already told me I'm gonna be arrested and I'm gonna go testify before Caesar. So I'm not gonna be back here at Ephesus. And he tells the elders of the church that he has somebody, he says, I want you to know that after I leave, savage wolves are gonna come in and they will not spare the flock. And even from your own number, men are gonna arise and they are gonna distort the truth so that they can draw disciples away after them. So here's what you need to do. Be on your guard. Same word. So wake up. Be alert. Watch. I'm telling you, wolves are coming. I'm telling you, false teachers are gonna rise up. You better be awake. You better be alert. You better be on your guard. Same word spoken to the church at Sardis. One last one, 1 Peter 5.8. Peter, near the end of his letter, is writing, and he says, I want you to be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The word alert, same word. Wake up, watch. So Jesus here is not just saying, wake up and go start making a little cup of coffee, get a little breakfast, you know, maybe go grab it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you're asleep, just like your city was. And you don't realize you're surrounded and they're about to come in and all the guys that are supposed to be watching the city are asleep. They're not awake. They're not watching. They don't realize what is going on. Like the city of Sardis, the church had fallen into a complacent slumber, not recognizing that danger was all around. We are always in spiritual warfare. The church cannot afford to fall into a complacent slumber unaware of the dangers all around. Here is a reality. As long as you are a Christian, and you are drawing breath, you live in a state of war. Always. There will not be, you will for the first time in your Christian life 
awaken and draw breath and not be in a state of warfare when you're beholding Jesus face to face, when you have died or when Jesus has returned. And until then, you are in spiritual warfare. Your enemy, the devil, is prowling around. He is looking for you and for me, and the church cannot miss this. And so Jesus goes on and he says, wake up, be alert, get on guard, because you're in spiritual warfare. Secondly, he says, I want you to strengthen what remains and is about to die. So he says, look, I've told you you're dead, but there are a few things that still have a little bit of life in them. There's a, there's a few embers that haven't completely gone out yet, but I want you to recognize that you that, that though these few things are alive and alert, they're barely alive and alert. It's almost as if there's a picture. There's a couple of guys on the wall that are still keeping watch, but I've been watching and they're starting to nod off. It's almost gone for them too. You, you gotta strengthen them. You gotta wake them up. There is no time to waste. It is going to be too far gone very soon. And he then goes on and says, you got to wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. He's again going back to the city and saying, walk out church, look up there on the hill. This is the nature of the place you dwell. Great ideas, great beginnings that you don't finish. You all have a reputation, and you started these things, but you have not finished what you began. So like the city in which you dwell, you started well, but you've dropped out. And you still got the reputation about all the stuff you started, but I inspected, and I found your deeds incomplete in the sight of my God. You've lost your passion. You have stopped walking with me You've stopped fighting in the spiritual warfare and you've all fallen asleep. That is, a, that is a hard judgment when he who stands with the angels in the spirit of God says this is what we speak to you and regarding you. So what's Jesus going to say? Well, by this point, if we've been following the letters, we should not be surprised that the command is repent. Now, this one is expanded a little bit in verse 3 because he says, remember, therefore, what you have received and, and heard, obey it and repent. But it's all really the same thing. The repentance is the key call. But just like in Ephesus, you remember in Ephesus where he said, look, you were doing well and your deeds were great, but, but you've been shrinking back. And I'm telling you, remember where you were and do the deeds of love. The way you get back to love is you do the deeds of love. You don't wait for the emotion to come back. You start by doing the deeds. Jesus comes back and says the same thing here. And he's telling them, you've got to remember where you were and you are to remember and repent and do what you were doing at first. You were awake at one point and you've fallen asleep and you're not going to just suddenly wake up. You're going to wake up by doing what you did at first. And so he tells them you're to repent by remembering the word that was given to you, receiving it, and obeying it. Now, what's interesting about this is, boy, you want to talk about a word that is relevant to our culture today. We think the solution to spiritual boredom, slumber, is finding something new. 
Jesus says it is cured by returning to the simple gospel that you've already heard. Jesus doesn't tell them, well, here's the solution. I've got a new word blowing through. Now, the solution to your slumber is remembering what you already knew. Okay, it's interesting, you know, just what, what they gave the testimonies this morning. If you notice the three couples that went to the marriage conference, none of them said, I heard and learned something I had never heard before. Because, see, that's not what creates our problems. Our problems are not that we haven't heard something before. It's that we're not remembering and doing what we need to do. It's the same thing in our walk with Jesus. And so he says the solution to your, your boredom and your having fallen asleep is not something new. It's not some new prophet coming in with a new word. No, it's you remembering the gospel that you heard and to receive it and to learn it and to embrace it and to obey it. And Jesus then warns them and says, but if you don't wake up, if you choose to not listen, because he's been telling that to every church, if you're choosing not to listen, here's what's gonna happen. If you don't repent and wake up, I will come like a thief in judgment on you. Now, the same word there, if you do not wake up, it's the same word. If you don't become alert, if you don't set up the watch on the wall, here's what's gonna happen. You remember how those armies came in and you guys weren't ready? Well, there's gonna be somebody coming in like a thief, and guess who it's gonna be? Me. Now, the interesting thing is, this analogy uh, of the thief coming and people not being watchful is based on Jesus' words. The same word for watching, being alert, being awake, and the wor same word for thief are used in Matthew 24, won't go through them, 42 to 44, where Jesus is saying, I'm gonna come back and you need to be alert and watch because I'm gonna come back and those who aren't ready, I'm gonna be coming like a thief in the night. And you won't be, and if the, if the owner of the house had known when the thief was coming, he'd have been ready. But see, here's the, the nature of it. You're never ready when the thief shows up. And that's why he steals all your stuff. And so this became kind of a proverb in the early church. You can read the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, the book we're going to study this spring, where Paul goes through the same thing. But he tells us, but as the Christians, as the church, you shouldn't be surprised like a thief by this day. You should know this day is coming. You should be awake and alert and watchful because you know you're in spiritual warfare. You know that God has said this is the way things are going to be. So you should always be prepared. But Jesus is telling the church at Sardis, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come. But he's not talking about his final coming here because it's not as if the whole world hinges on what's gonna happen. Well, Jesus was gonna wrap it all up, but the church at Sardis, they got to control that. What he's saying is, is I'm going to come, but I'm gonna come in judgment on you. I'm gonna come like a thief and you're not going to like the results. And so, he then goes on and even tells us, because see, here's what's happening. There's a result to your spiritual slumber. And that result is sinful living. Notice in verse four, yet you have a few people in Sardis. So we're now down. We've been seeing this progression through the weeks. There were only a few people had given in to Balaam. And then a lot more had given in to Jezebel there in Thyatira. He's now down to saying, there's only a few of you that are not in this state that I'm talking about a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. And they're gonna walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Soiling their clothes is a pretty obvious metaphor throughout the scripture for sin and compromise. 
You were given white clothes, but you have soiled these clothes. And most of you in the city, because you've fallen asleep, and this is the nature of what happens. When I spiritually fall asleep, when my walk with Jesus is not fresh and current, compromise with the world is sure to follow. Always. And so this is a dire situation. There's only a few people who are not doing this. And see, when, when our walk with Jesus grows cold, and we fall asleep spiritually, we lose the strength necessary to resist sin. And the devil is there, he is prowling around, he is ready. And we are, we are like an animal with, the, with the, you know, the, the lions coming up and the whole herd has moved on and we just sat there because we weren't awake. We didn't know what had happened. And that's a bad picture when you look up and you are surrounded by the pride of lions and the herd is nowhere to be seen. And Jesus says, there's only a few of you that actually woke up and realized the lions were coming. The rest of you are there and you are now trapped. So a vital spiritual life in the past is no protection from sin in the present. If I ask you, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? I don't want to hear what happened at a special Friday night meeting 15 years ago. That's, that is no safety from sin in the present. These few who are walking with Christ, they're the ones who are living in a manner worthy of the gospel. The rest of them are being trapped and compromised in sin. Because if we are not white hot in our current passion for Jesus, sin suddenly looks attractive. And you find yourself being like Adam and Eve in the garden. And that which is just abject foolishness. Every time I read it to my my uh, grandchildren, we read the little story there in the garden and the serpent's hissing in their ears. And I ask my grandchildren, I, I mean, a four-year-old can figure this out. What should they say? They should say, get away from me. No, God loves me. But you know what? When you're not walking close to him, all of those lies start to make sense. And it doesn't matter that five years ago, five months ago, you knew better, suddenly it makes sense now because sin is close and Jesus is far away. So I want to remind us here, and then we'll go to the, the applying the word. Jesus then goes on and tells them, he wants to remind them, this is not about salvation by works. The, the root of spiritual vitality is the fact that we have been justified by faith alone. And so Jesus says in verse five, he who overcomes will, like them, the ones I've just talked about, the few that are walking with me in white, he who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. The overcomer is dressed in white, which speaks of justification. And we don't have to guess at this. In Revelation 7, verse 14, John, as he continues in the vision, says this, they, the ones who are in white, they, they've been asking John, who are they? And the, and the angel says, they, uh, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. There's only one way to get a white robe. See, the problem is, I, I'm like, you know, you ever watch a kid who's got mud all over their hands and they're trying to clean something up? Or, you know, they, they get something in their, on their hands and get it in their eyes, and then they try and clean it out of their eyes, and what do they do? They just make it worse, right? 
See, that's what we do when we try to fix our own sin problem. Jesus just says, all you're doing is making a dirty robe dirtier. Stop. You can't fix it. The only thing you can do is have it washed white by me. And so the promise is that this comes from justification. Notice he even does it with the, the next analogy. It's not only the, the ones, uh, the, the robes that are white. He says, your name will never be blotted out of the book of life. No matter else, what else may happen, your salvation is secure with God. If you wake up and are with me, there may be a price to pay in the culture around you. The people of Sardis may come against you. You may begin to struggle in certain ways, but I want you to know this. Whatever they may do, they cannot blot your name out of the book. Because if your name is in that book, if you are justified, if you are my people, your status is secure now and for eternity. And Jesus comes back with a third way and tells them, he says that, and I will acknowledge you before my Father and the angels. See, you may be denied by the culture around you. They may turn on you, but I want you to know something. I will acknowledge you. On that day when you stand before God and you see him in his blinding holiness and all of his glory and all of the false ideas about God that are out there in the culture that always reduce God and make him more like us and so that our problem is not really that bad. On that day, Jesus says, you're gonna stand there and you're gonna see him and you are not gonna think he's just a little bit different than you. You are gonna see blinding holiness and you are gonna recognize your sin was deeper and broader and worse than you would ever imagined. And you will stand there and you will want to flee because you think, how can I stand before this holy God? And Jesus says at that moment, I will stand in and confess, you are mine and you are saved. And that is all you need. And on that day, there is no other refuge. There is no other place to hide. And so Jesus says, you need to be awake. You need to be awake now. Because on that day, you want your name in that book. Because the other book is the book of our deeds. When you get to the end of Revelation, there's only two books. Book of life and book where you're judged by your deeds. Friend, you don't want to be judged by those. Nor do I. Because I know what's in that book. I just, Jesus, just keep that one closed. Because I know what's in there. And, and I know it's worse than I can even imagine. I, I want the right book opened up. And I want Jesus to confess me. And I want to have white robes put on me. Like that image goes back to Zechariah where he looks and he sees Joshua the high priest and Satan is standing there and says, look at how nasty those clothes are. But God comes down and clothes the high priest in white. And Zechariah even says, put a clean turban on his head too. Friend, you want to be there on that day and Jesus is standing there saying, I put white clothes on him. So the root of all of this is our justification. The gospel is what gives us the power to live in holiness before God and our culture, resisting Satan, resisting sin, and resisting the world system. That's why you have to remember by going back to the gospel. It's not another message. It's not something secondary. We overcome the world by being born of God, not by works, but by faith. The apostle John, through whom Jesus is speaking this, actually said in 1 John 5, 4, everyone born of God overcomes the world. 
Everyone. How many is that? All of them. Everyone. If you are born of God, you do overcome the world. Because, John goes on, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Friend, you are justified by faith, and you are sanctified by faith, and on the final day, you and I are going to be glorified because we were those who had faith. It is salvation by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, not our works. Because on that day, I am not going to stand up and boast in anything I have done. Because if I want to boast in what I have done, the angel can stand there and start to lift up that book. Would you like to see what's in the book of works? Oh, no, Jesus, I'm okay. You just keep that one closed. Let's go with the book of life. I like that one. Okay, it is by faith. And if we have been justified by faith, then we are awake. Now, what does this mean for us? How do we apply this when we come to the Lord's table? First question, and I cannot stress this one enough, have I embraced Christ by faith? We cannot work our way to spiritual life. There are a thousand systems out there. There are a thousand different ways that people are telling you if you do this practice and you do this thing, you can find this ladder and you can climb the ladder to God. That is every system out there except for the gospel. The gospel is not how you get up to God. The gospel is how God has come down to you. And it has been that way from the beginning. God came down to the garden and walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. And ever since we've plucked the fruit, we've been trying to find the way of how we're going to get up to heaven. There is no way. And when you come to the end of the book of Revelation, if you notice, it's the city of God comes out of heaven down to us. And that is always the gospel. Have I embraced Christ by faith? Salvation is not found in your church. Do not think on that day you can stand there and say, well, it doesn't matter which book you open up. I was part of Bay Ridge. I will be ducking for you. Oh, dear God, let that not be your answer. I knew Brett. That definitely better not be your answer. That is an anchor on your soul, baby. Don't do that one. It is not based on any of that. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. It's not what my parents did. It's not my spiritual heritage. It is Jesus. So have you looked to Christ in faith? Not every other system, not adding Jesus in. This is it. No plan B. It is Jesus. He is my hope. If you have not, I urge, I urge, I urge you, hear the Spirit speak. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. Christ is here to shine on you. Look to him and him alone for salvation. For those of us, and if you've got further questions, please come to me, and I will be glad to talk with you endlessly about that. Secondly, if I am a believer, do I have a current, vital, spiritual walk with Christ? You cannot live out of a past walk. It does not work. In Ephesians 5.18, there's the famous phrase, you know, be filled with the Spirit. But the Greek, the way it's constructed, is actually be being filled with Spirit. It's a constant. 
It's, it's moment by moment being filled with the Spirit. Walter Martin, a great Christian teacher, said, I keep getting asked, how come I have to keep getting refilled with the Holy Spirit? He said, it's because I leak. <laughs> God pours it in and I'm leaking him out. I mean, constantly. So I got to keep being refilled, okay? Are we be being filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you and I, I, I urge us today as a church, as we come to the table, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Here is what he is saying to us in this seven weeks. Shake off spiritual slumber. Do not be asleep. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to this church. Renew your walk in Christ. Don't talk about what you did last year. Renew it in Christ now. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Draw near to God in prayer. If you have never prayed before, now is the time. Tomorrow, you're going to have that little card or you're going to get the email. Take time and pray. Draw near to God. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you and to me. Draw near in prayer. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Be alert and do spiritual warfare for our church, for your brothers and sisters, for your family, for your city. Satan is prowling around. And I am not speaking metaphorically, okay? I know people think this might be crazy, but I'm actually edumacated, and I still believe there is actually a real devil. And he is after you. And he hates you with a perfect hatred. And he hates your family. And he hates your friends. And he hates this church. And he hates this city. And he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And when it happens, we seem to want to look to everything other than spiritual warfare. But we are being called. The Spirit is calling us to spiritual warfare for every one of those areas. So we will now come to the table because here we see our source of life, which is Christ. And here at the table of life, we are going to freshly receive grace and mercy in our walk with God. Here, the Holy Spirit is going to move upon us to renew our walks. And so today, it's very simple. If there is sin, we confess. But I want us to ask the primary thing is, am I walking with Jesus? See, that's Largely, you know, this is the time that people call Lent, and we don't usually use those more traditional terms. But the whole point of it is, it's a time to re-examine. Where am I at? What, what is God speaking to me? Because, friends, we're going to hit Resurrection Sunday in a few weeks, and it's going to be a non-ending party for quite a while. But we, we want to be ready. We want to be alive. So as you come to the table today, let the Spirit speak you. Where are you alive? Where are you falling asleep? Where are you nodding off? And let's let the Holy Spirit speak.
to our guests, you do not have to be a member of this church to participate in this table. You do have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a meal for Christians. If you're not a believer and you don't believe Jesus alone is your hope of salvation, you can let it pass. There's no judgment in that from us. But to eat this is to confess Jesus is my only hope of salvation. If you believe that, you are welcome to join the For What I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body. This is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, we are ever grateful for your sacrifice for us as we come to this table this morning, we fresh and new confess we have no hope, we have no right to anything other than you and what you have done for us. Meet us by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come and speak to the people of God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. We will take them together in just a couple Father, as we hold this bread this morning, we are reminded of the broken body of Jesus Christ. He was broken because of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, as we take this bread this morning, we confess that we are sinful. We confess that we have soiled our robes, and the only way to a white robe is by Jesus Christ. Father, we confess we have no hope of salvation other than him. And as we eat, O Lord, we eat in faith that Jesus alone is sufficient for our salvation. We say thanks be to God for the broken body of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we take this cup of the new covenant that represents the blood of Christ shed for us, Lord, we recognize that you have made and kept covenant with us, that there is nothing that stands between us and you. By the blood of Christ, we are washed and made pure and white and cleansed so that we might be a kingdom and priest to serve our God. Father, we thank you that the blood of Christ has done this for us. Lord, we thank you that because of the blood of Christ, when we wake tomorrow, we will stand pure and holy and righteous and blameless before you. That each day we begin new in the mercy of our God. Lord, we are thankful that the blood of Jesus is powerful to cleanse us from our past sins, to free us from their penalty, but also to break the power of current sin 
to free us from its power. Lord, we say thanks be to God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Take and drink. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray that you who have begun this work in us will continue it, that Lord, what you have spoken to us, what you spoke to us this morning through this letter, that we, your church, would hear and we would obey. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray for anyone here whose walk is stale, who is living in a state of spiritual slumber. I pray, Holy Spirit, that today and tomorrow and each day this week, they would hear your voice saying, wake up, rise up. And that, Father, they would hear, heed, and obey. Lord, I pray for any of us who may be trying to live off of past walk, I pray we would not do so any longer. Lord, I pray that your word and your grace and the presence of your spirit would be fresh and new for us this week. That, Lord, we would be conscious of who you are and that we live in and through you and we live before your face all our days. Father, make us aware where the enemy would be coming in. And I pray, Lord, when he would come, rather than quaking, Father, we would rise up, we would be awake. Father, I pray we would not be like Sardis. I pray we would not wake up to find that the whole city has been conquered while we slept. Father, I pray by your spirit we would be found faithful, being alert, knowing that because of you, because of the Holy Spirit, we need not fear. For greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And everyone born of God overcomes the world because the victory over the world is our faith. Lord, we thank you for doing all of this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. And I encourage you to receive the blessing of God as you go forth to walk with him. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory for all ages, now and forevermore. And all of God's people say, amen. Go in the peace of God. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.